All right, hopefully you're in 1 Samuel 17 by now. So a runoff, huh? A runoff election, that's what we're talking about, a runoff election. As you undoubtedly know, Chicago had a little election on Tuesday. It's resulted in a number of runoff campaigns where winners haven't been decided because nobody got a majority of the votes. That happened in our ward here, so we are having a runoff between two candidates, and it also happened in our city between the two candidates that are, are left in the mayoral race. These two candidates are very different from one another. Although, funny thing, like on Tuesday, did you see the pictures of all the candidates at Manny's Delicatessen? And everybody was like super chummy, and everybody's like, yeah, we're best of friends after they've been <laughs> trashing each other for quite some time. Our present candidates are two very different candidates. The pundits would tell us that each of them will be mostly judged on a few issues, public safety and policing, public schools, and taxes. Okay. Well, today we're going to enter another political field. This is not a democratic political field, but this field is about kings, three kings in particular. We'll reacquaint ourselves with them, specifically two of them, and how they get their take on one particular issue, the third king. And that their take on that third issue, on that third king, has far-reaching effects. The two kings that I'm talking about initially are Saul and his son, Jonathan. The one particular issue, what does Saul and Jonathan think about king number three, David? The relational interplay between these three sets the stage for the first Samuel scenes that we'll see this morning. But I would like us to consider friendship this morning, even as we go through these chapters. Who would call you their friend? You have a list on your phone, these are my friends. Why would they call you their friend? Long history together, similar interests, maybe you live in the same house. Well, obviously, friendship with a mayoral candidate would change your perspective of that candidate's campaign, and also would perhaps change your perspective if your candidate gets into office and you are his friend. And friendship changes the perspective of the three kings this morning, too. So who would you call your friend is, or who would call you their friend is part of my pastoral question this morning. But the second question is this, does Jesus call you his friend? And why? Our answer to that question is an incisive indicator of our heart's condition. Does Jesus call you his friend? Why? As we go into these chapters in 1 Samuel, we're going to see a situation that's full of the danger of death. Literally. But it's a situation that forged a friendship that was greater than death. 
So our Father, as we come to your word this morning, I would ask that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak and that you would lift our eyes to King Jesus. Help your word to do that, Lord, and in whatever way you want to use my words, Lord, please do. But if they need to fall to the floor so that your word can be lifted up, please do that too. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So these three kings. We have Saul. He's the reigning king. Saul was once anointed as king by Samuel and given the Holy Spirit. But now, because of his sin, God has torn the kingdom from Saul's grasp and the Spirit has left him. Jonathan, you might be saying, Jonathan is not a king. In a way, you're correct. But Jonathan is the prince who would be king. Except if you connect the dots, if Saul knows that the kingdom is being torn from him, and that was a very public thing that Samuel did, Jonathan knows the kingdom is not going to be his. The prince who would be king, except that God has torn the kingdom away from his father and therefore from him. David is the young shepherd who has been anointed as king now by Samuel. But he isn't reigning yet. He doesn't have a throne. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have counselors. He's still doing stuff at home. So from here on out in 1 Samuel, there's going to be a tension. And this tension is that there is David, who is already king because he's been anointed, but he's not yet king. And that tension is going to play out throughout the rest of the book. As we know, David has not just been hanging out with sheep. He just won an epic victory through faith in the name of God of the armies of Israel. You'll remember he proclaimed the battle is the Lord's to Goliath and then he slew him. David saves fearful Israel and saves fearful Saul. He was on the hook. He should have been the one stepping up to Goliath. But instead, David's faithful victory saves Israel and Saul by defeating Goliath and routing the Philistines. So we come here to the end of chapter 17, and it's immediately following the victory. You can look at verse 55. And we're going to find Saul clueless and Jonathan doubtless. Verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Quite a picture. Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, 
was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So we see Saul clueless. Who is this guy? Saul, do you really not know? And then Jonathan here, as soon as David finishes speaking, instantly knows I'm joining myself with him. So here we have, following David's epic victory, we have something else epic that happens. Abdication. Say that with me. Abdication. We see Jonathan's soul knit to David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. But notice this. Jonathan did not knit his soul to David, His soul was knit to David. This was a weaving together of souls that came from elsewhere. Then as that happens, Jonathan becomes the subject of the action. Though he is older than David, though he is privileged, and though he is powerful, he loves David. He makes a covenant with David. And then he shockingly abdicates. One more detail here before we go into abdication. We often think of Jonathan and David as being of the same age. Like maybe two guys in their early 20s. They might sit like in the first few rows of church here if they were here. Jonathan was probably 27 years older. Than David. The way that we figure that out is that Saul reigned for 40 years and David was 30. David was 30 when he began to reign. So that means that Saul had already been in power for 10 years when David was born. Well, then if you work out some of the other math in terms of when a soldier could be a soldier, In Israel, when Jonathan could be a soldier and fight for his dad, which was not until age 20, and then you work out when David was actually fighting, those sorts of things, it seems that there was a large age difference, perhaps even as great as 27 to 30 years between these two men. That makes this abdication even more shocking. What is abdication? It's a formal resignation of the throne, relinquishing one's right to rule, resigning from what is yours and stepping away. In 1936, after 11 months as the king of the United Kingdom, Edward VIII abdicated his throne. Why? So he could marry an American divorcee, Wallace Simpson. His 
later relative. In January of 2020, Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex, and Meghan, Duchess of Sussex, announced on Instagram their decision to step back as senior members of the British royal family, thereby abdicating certain royal rights, responsibilities, and even wealth. As you know, with Harry and Meghan, this sends shockwaves, right? It also did back in 1936 with Edward VIII, minus Instagram. Abdication is shocking. It is stepping away from what is, especially in Israel, Israelite culture and British culture, a divine right. Here, Jonathan willingly divests himself of his rights and privileges to which we would say, why? This seems so sudden, so careless. Well, let me pull some things together from some of our past sermons. If you remember, God saves sinners by the one he sends. Jonathan just saw David save sinners. And he abdicates. Nothing can stop the Savior who lays down his life. Jonathan just saw David willingly lay down his life. And he abdicates. In the sight of the king, image is a heart thing. Jonathan just saw David's heart glorify the Lord on the battlefield. And he abdicates. Faith in the living God victoriously glorifies because the battle is the Lord's and all glory belongs to him. Jonathan just saw the Lord's glorious victory through David and he abdicates. Why would Jonathan so suddenly abdicate, so publicly abdicate? Because his soul has now been knit to the Christ. He sees the king that God has sent. The evidence is overwhelming. As he says to David a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 23, David, you shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Let me say this directly. This is a powerful picture of the gospel. That we can be saved by the grace of God through repentance and faith. See, we are our own self-rulers, ready to consolidate our power. And when it comes down to it, we feel like we've got the right to rule our own lives. But God, by his grace, sends the Holy Spirit to knit our hearts to the greater David to the greater Christ. That is his work of grace. And when he does that, as Jonathan did to David, we see that God has sent a Savior, capital S, 
who has victoriously conquered sin, death, and the giant Satan. And that Savior is the true King, Jesus the Christ. The reborn heart, the heart that has been knit to Christ, suddenly understands. And that heart's reaction, I will resign my rights to self-rule. I repent. And I declare my allegiance. You are my king. That is the response of the reborn heart. That a knitting that has come from elsewhere comes and does a work of profound and eternal grace. This is an an invitation to us as we read this to repent and believe. Listen, you and I can continue to wear the robe of our own self-rule of our own reign of self-righteousness. It seems to, per, to fit us pretty nicely. It should, because we grow into it pretty nicely. But this robe is just covering a heart that needs to be saved from itself. Its rights and its freedom of self-determination. But how does that work for us? How does that work for you? Is it working for you? All the things that, all the merit badges you put on that robe, all of the definitions of your own kingdom, when it comes down to it, aren't they just like dust? As we sang earlier, does it not just remind you that life is a vapor? Jeff Bezos won't take it with him. Ja Morant might be losing it as we speak. I only mention famous people as examples. Don't let their fame remove the work of the Spirit in us as common folk. The heart of Saul seeks to keep the robe. We're about to see where that leads. But I'll remind you of what Jesus said when he arrived on the scene at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. He said this, the time is fulfilled. The time is now. The kingdom of God is here. How should we respond? Repent and believe in the Gospel. Simple. Lay down your robe of self-rule that covers whatever you use to defend yourself, covers that heart of self-righteousness. Allow that heart to be exposed. Give him everything that you try to defend yourself with, your armor, your sword, your bow, your belt, and how those figuratively work out in your life. And just abdicate. I cannot rule my life anymore. That is what Jesus calls us to. After David's epic victory and Jonathan's epic abdication, we have something else epic that happens. Saul's attempted assassinations. His 
eliminations. Imagine the shock of Saul, this self-consumed man, and now his heir, the one who would establish the continuity of his kingdom, has now willingly given up his rights to a shepherd boy. If Saul didn't realize before the kingdom was torn from his grasp, he's understanding it more now. So we see a desperate Saul with a vacant heart. And we see how this king on the decline then begins to respond. His heart manifesting itself in crazy ways. We're moving on to chapter 18. In verses 7 and 8, Saul hears the victory songs of the women. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And verse 8 says, And Saul was very angry at these victory songs. He didn't like the comparison between the two. In verses 10 and 11, a harmful spirit comes on Saul, and he raved, and he tries to assassinate David while he's in his presence, playing the lute twice. Remember the lute before used to calm him down? Sorry, the lyre. The lyre used to calm him down. There's no calming him anymore. David escapes. In verse 12, Saul is now explicitly afraid of David because the Lord was with him. In verse 17, Saul conspires to kill David, but not by his own hand, using the Philistines. Verse 21, he presents his own daughter, Michal, as a snare, hoping that through him, through her, David would be killed. How does that work? Because Saul is going to propose an outlandish bride price. Go get me 104 skins from Philistines. You've heard throughout 1 Samuel the way the Philistines are always described as the uncircumcised. So David goes out. Interesting thing. Does it say that David killed them? No. I think there's a possibility here that David went and these Philistines said, we recognize you too. Because see, when Gentiles would worship Yahweh, they would get circumcised. Not only does David bring back 104 skins, he brings back 200. To which Saul gets more afraid. He realizes, verses 28 and 29, the Lord is with him and his daughter Michal loved David. So he becomes, in his mind, David's enemy continually. In verse 30, David is more successful than any of Saul's servants. His star is ascending. So now David asks his servants and Jonathan to conspire to kill David. But the thing is, Jonathan delights in David. And he convinces Saul in verses 5 and 6. And Saul decides to chill. But moving on to verse 9, another harmful spirit from the Lord comes on Saul and he tries to pin David to the wall with a spear again. 
In verse 11, Saul sends messengers to David's house to wait outside to kill him. David's inside with his wife, and they find out. Michal helps David escape. If you want to read more about David's thoughts about that incident, Psalm 59 is actually a full psalm just about being in the house and knowing there were murderers outside. David escapes and he runs to Samuel. That brings us to chapter 19, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then David sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul... He sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then Saul himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. And he went to Naioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul among the prophets? This happened before, right? After Saul was anointed, Samuel said, these things are going to happen when when the, the Spirit rushes upon you. This is a parallel episode, but it's different. That prompted the people to say, we have a king, and apparently the Spirit of God is with him. Here the people are saying, we have a king, and he's laying naked on the floor. See, Jonathan divested himself of his royal rights willingly. The true king here divests Saul of his royal rights just because he can. Who's the real king here? Saul. It reminds me, we were just saying earlier about the reality that at that day, every knee will bow before him. That is true. There will be some who will bow before him because we have, by God's grace, been bowing before him. There will be many others who will bow because they can't take the glory of God. And their sin is before them and judgment is on them. They will go to their knees in terror. This is Saul. What is the difference here? As Saul is exposed as a naked fool. The difference is who inhabits the heart. 
The spirit-filled heart walks in the path of faith, walks with the Christ, and abdicates and bows before the true king. Whereas the self-filled heart, seen in Saul, walks in the path of fear, always wondering what is happening next, always considering, is my kingdom threatened? And so the self-filled heart refuses to bow and seeks to eliminate the true king. Just a few things that I want to say about that reality. We can see this in the response of the world to Christians. And hear me, when I say Christians, I don't just mean like you can check a box on your medical form to say, I am a Christian. I mean a Christian who is, as we've been talking about, a little Christ who has been anointed by the Holy Spirit and saved by the blood of Jesus. The world responds to Christians how they responded to Christ. Jesus himself in Matthew 10 said, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. He was saying, listen, when you follow the Christ, division is going to come. And in that passage, he specifically talks about division within the closest of relationships, family. He's not saying take out your sword and start cutting people off. He's saying follow me and we'll see what happens. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says we are always carrying around the fragrance of Christ. To those who are being saved, it is life to life. To those who are not, it is death to death. See, sometimes we wonder why, why we have relational difficulties. There could be a lot of reasons for that. However, I would say this. I know there are those of us among, among us here who have knowingly endured character assassination and family split for the sake of Christ. See, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ do not know how to relate to those who do. Paul is hitting the nail on the head when he said, we smell like death to those who are dead. We are fundamentally different in Christ. This is nothing for us to boast about. It is a spiritual reality. Because we have been reborn through the Spirit, Christians. We have been changed. We now live for our King. Perfectly? No. But trajectorily? Yes. Those who live for self-rule may seem to act crazy toward us because of this. They might say things like, I thought like I used to know you. But now you're making decisions that are whacked out. It's like you're playing with a whole new set of rules. Yes, we are. Because we have a new king. 
which, brother and sister, this makes it even more important that we make sure that we are Christian. I mentioned social media a couple of weeks ago. I won't go there necessarily, but let's just talk about the fullness of life. When people, if, when there's relational friction, Christian, is that relational friction because you are standing on Christ or because it's your flesh that is showing up? When you're in that difficult discussion with someone who you don't, I mean, you don't ultimately know their heart, but in your mind you'd be thinking, I don't think they know the Lord. Does your flesh come out? Does your flesh make that fight rage? Or do you humble yourself and say, Christ, as you humbled yourself, let me be humble. Let me be charitable. Let me display grace right now. They may still think that I stench of death, but it's going to be your death that is on me. Make sure that we are, by God's grace, living as Christians. Not Christians who have some other sort of identity that then causes things to get flared up. Second of all is this. I also know that we wonder about people that have walked away. What do we do with those situations? In 1 Timothy, Paul talks about Hymenaeus and Alexander, two guys that were close to him. And he said they made a shipwreck of their faith. They made a shipwreck of their faith. Saul certainly did. In 2 Timothy, Paul talks about Demas, who loved the world and deserted me. As we think about those who seemingly have walked away, Saul is a picture of why people who do that so often do it with such vitriol and zeal. I want to eliminate the fragrance, any fragrance of Jesus that might have been on me. I don't want anything to do with those people anymore. It's epic elimination. Now I would say this as well. Do we ultimately know that person's heart? No, we don't. However, we're given the responsibility based on the evidence of a life. Paul did. Demas was with me, and he loved the world and deserted me. Hymenaeus and Alexander made a shipwreck of their faith. It doesn't make it any less painful when people who we have loved and they have loved us for ways that we can't, for reasons that we can't understand, all of a sudden are setting themselves against the Christ. Does that mean their story is over? No. 
but it does mean that we have to understand what we understand at the current place, the current chapter in that story. And pray. But we haven't talked about friendship yet. We turn to that first question. Actually, the second question. Does Jesus call you his friend? That's part of like what makes what we were just talking about why it can sting so much. Because the love that Christians have for one another is not just like um, a superficial earthly love. It's a Christian love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a Jesus-centered love. But does Jesus call you friend and why? John 15, as, as John, as John, as Joey read earlier, Jesus says to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he goes on to say, I have called you friends. I have called you friends. We need to sit in that for a little bit. Yes, we have a sovereign king. Yes, we have a sacrificial savior. Yes, we have a perfect older brother. All of those are true of Jesus. But know this. In Christ, we have an eternal friend. We have an eternal friend. Proverbs 18.24 says, There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is that friend. Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother because his covenant blood, as we'll celebrate later, his covenant blood is thicker than blood, family blood, thicker than water, the covenant of friends. His covenant blood binds us to him, knits us to him. He is a friend who sticks closer than a brother because that friendship lasts forever. And it's because by his grace, he has knit our hearts to his own. Listen, when we take off our robes, he does not leave us naked on the floor. He covers us with his loving kindness. He covers us with himself. With his own robes of righteousness. Now we have a merit that is not our own. But notice this. Jesus, as he's saying this reality, I have called you friends, he says this in the context of saying, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So his covenant friendship is revealed, is felt by our covenant friendships. Which leads us back to John 15, where we have to begin thinking about a major part of what it means to be a disciple, what it means to grow in discipleship, is to grow in friendship. Often around here we talk about discipleship as being learning Jesus and loving Jesus. You know, there might not be a better definition of what true friendship is. Because you're learning someone and you're loving them. 
friendship and discipleship increasing, as I'm seeing, are pretty close to synonymous. So in a sense, abdication, laying down our robes, is not just something we do towards Jesus, but it's something we do towards one another. We lay down our rights, sacrificially loving one another. That's what 1 John was all about, right? Abdication through Christian friendship. All of this has led the epic victory to epic abdication to epic elimination attempts leads to finally an epic covenant. And we're going to see this in chapter 20 where there's an eternal covenant made between Jonathan and David and their families. Though it's Jonathan that initiates the covenant, still, like he did in chapter 18, it is David who is unique in this covenant. It's David who has repeatedly talked about as being guiltless. It's David who might have to give up his life if he's assassinated by Saul. But it's also Jonathan who is willing to give up his life for his friend David. So we're getting this picture of the guiltless Savior willing to die, but also the one who has laid down his robes, who is willing to give his life, take up his cross for the sake of the one who is his greatest friend. This is pointing to our friend's covenant with us, Jesus Christ. You're also going to see here the mention of steadfast love and kindness. This is friendship. And then when you consider the reality that they are probably like 27 to 30 years different in age, then all of a sudden it really brings it home to the local church. That there are not like age levels that we have to keep our fellowship and our discipleship in. Instead, it needs to be layered. It needs to be Titus type of fellowship where the older are discipling the younger, but the younger are also pursuing discipleship. And there are genuine friendships that are happening, not just like mentor-mentee type relationships. These are genuine friendships of love. And before I read chapter 20, let me just tell you this. You're going to see one more thing that's repeated a couple of times. And if this is not the essence of Jesus' friendship with us and our friendship with each other, I don't know what is. This statement, the Lord shall be between me and you forever. That sort of eternal human to God Friendship and people of God, brothers and sisters, friendship can only be accomplished by the Lord being in the center of it. Let's go to chapter 20. I'm going to read a couple sections of it. Let's go to verse 12. They've just, they've just um, decided on this plan where David needs to figure out, is Saul still going to kill him? 
and they come up with this plan about, um, well, they're going to come up with that plan a little later about shooting arrows so that this would help him understand whether or not Saul desires to eliminate David. But look at verse 12. This is a covenant renewal between these two friends. The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it, disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Go down to verses 22 and 23. They're arranging this thing with the arrows now that is going to be the way to communicate how Saul reacts at the feast of the, of the new moon. Jonathan says this, look, the arrows are beyond you. This is what he would instruct his, his um, arrow boy. Then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. He, they did not know if they would see each other again. Verse 26, yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. David missed the first feast of the new moon. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. Saul is all in his own head. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. The Hebrew word there is escape. He earnestly asked me to escape to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for me from um, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. 
And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that there is no longer any enmity with you. There is now peace with God because of you. You are the man in the middle. You are the one who stands between us and for your offspring forever and ever. We entrust ourselves to you. And God, I, I want to say thank you. I thank you for the way that this church loves one another. And I pray that it would increase. As your gospel, as your gospel floods the far creases of our hearts, heals us more and more, points us to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, all the more that our love for one another, the eternal nature of that love, would flow out in time and place and sacrifice. That we would lay down our robes before you and before one another, loving each other as you have loved us, as friends. In your wonderful name we pray, Jesus. Amen.